So our teaching series this fall I've called uh, Christian Values in Changing Times. And really we're looking at several questions that our culture is wrestling with. And many people I think uh, in our Oikos are wrestling with is, you know, what does it mean to be a Christian? And more on like, how does it, what does this look like? How do, how should Christians live? What should our living kind of look like? And so we're going to be looking at a lot of different questions and, and really the idea of all of this is to move beyond politics because are you like me? Like, are you sick of watching the news? Yes. Like you're just so over it, right? And the, the conservative and the liberal, and I'm just like, I can't, I feel like this is harming my soul. So uh, I'm trying to forge a different path here of what does it mean to be a, a Christ follower? What, are, what should we try to be doing? And one of the foundational concepts that we're talking about is what does it mean to be created in the image of God? As I started surveying kind of the, the, the landscape of so many of the questions that we're talking about in the political sphere, I saw this thread that they were all connected, or a lot of them were connected to image of God questions. This beautiful doctrine that we really don't actually talk a whole lot about in the church but is very foundational to the Christian worldview. And I thought it would, be, it would be interesting to explore this issue from another a number of different points of view. And many of these ideas are connected to what we call human rights. You know, we don't use that term so much anymore, but it's out there in the social justice world. And um, the idea of humans having inherent dignity, value, and worth And in fact, many people don't know this, but the image of God concept is actually the very foundation of of the concept of human rights. A hundred years ago, when the world was more oriented toward the Christian worldview, the whole idea of founding the UN, and in fact, we looked at an excerpt from the preamble of the statement from the UN last week, is basically uh, reflects a very Christian world, Judeo-Christian worldview ideas that humans have inherent dignity, value, and worth. And this is where we get such concepts as uh, freedom. See, if we're going to have freedom for all people, it's because all people have value. And the whole idea of freedom is a very uh, connected idea to the Judeo-Christian worldview. So today we're going to be talking in particular about freedom of religion. And what does it mean to have freedom of religion. And so the question that I'm posing today is, should Christians protect the rights of minority religions? So here's a recent news piece about Russia and that the Jehovah's Witnesses have been labeled by the Russian government as extremists. And it is now illegal to practice or to be a practicing member of the Jehovah's Witnesses in Russia. There's a little excerpt from this news story. It says, it's official. Jehovah's Witnesses can no longer practice their faith freely in Russia, where the Supreme Court on Thursday, this is back in May, I believe, declared the pacifist religious organization as an extremist group and banned all of its activities. The judge ordered all 395 local chapters and its Russian headquarters to close and authorized the government to seize all property. Under the ruling, distributing copies of the Watchtower, discussing their beliefs in public, or even worshiping at a meeting hall has become a crime. Now, in in Russia, 
uh, the majority religion is actually Christianity. It's or Russian Orthodox Christianity. And we could have a separate conversation about your opinions about whether or not they're really Christians. But the, the, that is the, the, the legal, the mainstream, um, the majority religion. Now, we as Christians see Jehovah's Witnesses as like kind of this cultic offshoot of Christianity, right? They claim that they're kind of a more pure um, version of Christianity. And Christianity has, historic Christianity has corrupted the Bible, and so they have this alternative translation. And I don't know about you, but when they come to my door on Saturday morning, I don't, that's, that's not like my idea of a fun time. You know, you're, you're hiding in your house. <laughs> I know you do it, all right? Being somewhat annoyed by the Jehovah's Witnesses coming to your door is quite a different thing than saying they're illegal, right? Yeah. And so if they're, they're at your door, you can have the freedom to, to not open your door. You don't have to talk to them. You can politely say, no, thank you. You don't have to take their literature. So we see them as basically a false religion. So why should we care whether or not they belong to a legally protected religion? That it's beyond annoying, but should we care? Because the, 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 the sentiment among many Orthodox Christians in Russia is that who cares? They're a false religion. Why should I worry about protecting a minority religion? And if we think back from history, if we think about the Holocaust, the majority of Germany at that time were Lutherans, which is a form of Christianity. It's German, Christianity, German Protestants. So why w was it virtuous for the Ten Boom family in Holland to hide Jews when they were Christians? They were part of the majority religion. Why would it be seen as virtuous to hide members of a minority religion? I think it's an interesting question. Because we look at the Ten Boom family as being very virtuous, don't we? Yes. Yeah. Why? Why was it morally wrong to kill Jews simply based on their religion? See, we take it for granted that that's just a moral wrongness. But why do we believe that? Why is that morally wrong? If you are from a secular, progressive point of view, and humans are just at the end of the evolutionary chain of advanced mammals, and it's all survival of the fittest, why should I care about a minority religion? Your religion lost. It's not in the majority. So why is it wrong to kill Jews? What if Hitler had simply just made Judaism illegal. Would that have been morally okay? To me, these are very profound questions in our culture right now because we are grappling with some very difficult questions along these lines. So I want to take some time to understand where do we get the idea of religious freedom? Because we are living in an increasingly secular culture with a different set of values. But I don't think that Christians are real clear about why we have the values that we have. We just sort of have this vague intuition. Freedom seems like a good idea. Coercion seems like a bad idea. But we don't really know why. So I want to just take a few minutes to really outline the case for religious freedom. So we're going to look at this biblically, theologically, and legally. 
So the biblical foundation, the foundation of everything that we've been talking about is Genesis 1, 26 and 27. That all humans have inherent dignity, value and worth. And where we get this from, it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, let in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and the livestock over all the earth, and over all the creatures that now move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. We've also talked about how under the new covenant, as new covenant Christians, we have dual citizenship, right? That we are Christians first, right? We're not Americans first. We're not white people first or Chinese people first. We're, we're Christians first. This is, where it's more than our race. It's more than our, our citizenship on earth. It is our citizenship is in heaven. So we have certain obligations and certain moral codes that we're supposed to live by as a result of being a citizen of heaven. That we are expected to engage in general obedience to the human government, even when it's corrupt. Do you, do you guys know that the Roman government was corrupt? Are we clear about that point? The Roman government at the time of the apostles was not a fair and just government, right? It was a very corrupt government. And yet what is Paul's admonition to the Roman church? He tells them that they are to obey and pray. That's right. So it says in Romans chapter 13, for rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and he will commend you. For he is God's servant to do you good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword for nothing. He is God's servant, an angel of wrath, to bring punishment for the wrongdoer. And notice how... In this, this system, like Paul almost like seems to have this unrealistic view of the Roman government that they're going to be just. They're going to be God's arm for justice. But we know that that wasn't really the case. He's almost like laying out the ideal of what the government should be. It should protect the innocent and punish the guilty. But their current reality was not that. Isn't that interesting? And yet Jesus says, pay your, pay your taxes to Caesar. He doesn't say, well, pay your taxes to Caesar if Caesar uses your money wisely. <laughs> right? We have a very complicated relationship with our human governments, don't we? But that has been the case from the beginning. That the human government does not always reflect our values as Christians. We should work toward just governments. We should work toward just laws. But we still have some obligation to obey them. When God's law conflicts with human law, what are we to do? We ought to obey God rather than men. This was the problem of Peter and John when they were healing on the Sabbath early in Acts. And they threw him in jail. And, they, and he says, you know, it's up to you to be the judge of who we are. But as far as God's law is concerned, we must obey God, not men. And it might end us in jail. Well, thankfully, we don't really have that problem too often in our country. But other places in the world, that's a more imminent threat. And, it, and for them, it cost them their life in that case. 
next is that faith is not coerced. That in Christianity, we have this idea that faith ought not be coerced. God allows us to make free will choices even when we make the wrong choices. And this forms the idea of freedom, that we should allow others to make free will choices too. Have you ever noticed that God doesn't coerce you? I see this so much in the uh, prayer ministry that I'm involved with, that many people make um, very sad choices in their lives. And have you ever noticed that, like, most of your life is really about what choices you make? You know, and a lot of the choices seem to happen between the ages of 15 and 25. That's like some magical window that that sets the trajectory of much of your life for, like, the next 30, 40 years, doesn't it? It, Those choices that you make is what makes your life. And, And I noticed that Many people don't um, always make terrific choices. Some people make very hurtful, painful choices. Some people make destructive choices. And sometimes I talk to people, they're like, well, if God didn't want me to do this, then he should just stop me. And it's like, well, you know, that's not how that works, right? He respects our choices, even our poor ones. But what I've also noticed is, like it says in James chapter 4, that when we choose to draw near to God, what does it say? He will draw near to us. And this, I see this over and over when I work with people that have been on a path of destructive choices that when they turn back toward God, immediately God's right there. And he's ready to meet them. And he, he does it in such a gracious way. So, but, but our life is about choices. And this is the very foundation of freedom. That because God respects our free will, we don't coerce others to make certain choices the holy spirit alone changes hearts not human governments right have you ever noticed that like you can make something illegal and people don't like it or you can even make something legal that seems immoral but people the lord will change people's hearts anyways these this idea of freedom is a distinctly christian idea it's, it's not a secular progressive idea. It's a very Christian idea. I, I think this is a great summary of how we as Christians think about these things. So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. This is from the Sermon on the Mount. This is kind of the whole thing in a nutshell of um, the basics of religious freedom. So now let's turn to the, the theological concept here. So we're going to fast forward a little bit in time from the scriptural time, the time of the apostles, up to the time of the Reformation. Okay, you guys ever heard of Martin Luther and the Lutherans? One of the great turning points in Western civilization was the, was the Reformation. And in the Reformation comes this concept of the individual. And when Luther stands... In front of a council um, of the Catholic bishops, and he says, you know, he makes his famous stand of, unless you can show me from scripture or from reason um, about these things that you're teaching, then, you know, I'm, I'm not going to accept it. And that he kind of takes this individual stand, apart from the church, apart from the group. That is a major turning point in history. 
because for the first time, somebody was coming against the group and saying, as an individual, I need to see a truth. And this is where we get all kinds of Protestant concepts of the priesthood of the believer and, and the perspicuity of scripture. There's just a ton of concepts we get out of this. But one of the concepts that we get out of the Reformation is a change in how we perceive governments. And this is a distinctly Protestant way of thinking, Western Protestant idea. And this is an idea in theology that we call common grace versus saving grace. You guys ever heard of common grace? Is that a new concept? For It's not something we talk a lot about, but it's a very important concept that we use every day. You might just not know the word of it. So I wanted to take a minute to explain common grace. Christians and non-Christians enjoy certain blessings of life, provision and abundance, that the rain comes to fall on the just and the unjust. You ever notice that? You know, that the laws of physics work whether or not you're righteous or unrighteous. And you can become prosperous or poor, depending on the choices that you make. That there's certain laws that have just kind of been set up. That if you generally follow these laws, you will come to prosperity. And if you generally follow these other laws, you'll come into ruin. That's what the book of Proverbs is about. Well, this is what theologians call common grace. Christians and non-Christians both can, they're born, they breathe, they can wake up to their life, they can get married, they can have children, they can work, they can... They can get certain, um, they can make a living and, and acquire things. This is all part of God's common grace that we have. And all of us can experience this, whether you are a believer or an unbeliever, okay? And this is part of human governments as well. Is This is an, a mechanism of God's common grace. That God, because you ever notice like how when there's no government, when there's total anarchy in those countries, it's not very graceful. It's not very peaceful, right? So if you have a good government, the ideal is that you have a just government that protects the innocent and punishes the guilty, right? Versus no government at all. And sort of a quasi-corrupt government that sort of protects some of the innocent and, and punishes some of the guilty is better than no government at all, where it's just total survival of the fittest, right? So human governments are also a form of God's common grace. And God gives the grace of life and the goodness to all, whether people receive or reject him. Even the unjust receive God's grace. Now, this is in contrast to saving grace. Saving grace is that grace that is only extended to those who put their faith and trust in Christ. Does that make sense? It's a different kind of grace. It empowers us to repent and to change our ungodly ways and to to justify us from our sin, assuring us of eternal life. And it cannot be, saving grace cannot be enjoyed if it's rejected, right? Because God won't force you into it. He doesn't coerce your will. So these are two types of grace. And government is seen after the the Protestant Reformation and from which the American Revolution is a direct result of the rise of Protestantism. So this idea that you mentioned earlier, like, well, what's what's that line of how do we know when to rebel against governments? That was a feature that came out of the Protestant Reformation of how can we make governments more just? 
How can we help them do a better job of protecting the innocent and punishing the guilty? And that was the grand experiment of our founding fathers of how to do that. Humans have the capacity for both beauty and wretchedness. Have you ever noticed that? Beauty, we are created in the image of God. There is a part of us that is still connected to God. It reflects God. But we have fallen into sin. And we need a worldview that can account for both the beauty and the wretchedness of humanity. And I think that Christianity is very unique in that way. Because we see humans as being created in the image of God. They are very beautiful. And all humans have value. And they, are, they have worth. But we also are very circumspect about their wretchedness and their sinfulness and their capacity. So there's a saying that says inside of all of us is either a Mother Teresa or an Adolf Hitler. You know, <laughs> it's a spectrum issue. There's that capacity within us and somewhere in between. Government is a, is a means of restraining evil and rewarding the good. It extends to all Christians and non-Christians alike. So this is a, an idea. I mean, I'm being very superficial here in these, these big ideas, but I want you to get a feel for our heritage as Protestant Christians of how we think about governments and how we think about these things. Finally is the legal foundation for religious freedom, the founding of our nation. Our nation's founders were heavenly influenced by Protestant Christian ideas. Now, as individuals, they had varying degrees of belief in God. Some were devout Christians. Some were more like cultural Christians. Some were more like philosophical deists. They just kind of believed God was out there somewhere, but he really didn't interact with his world. So when we talk about Christian, America, as being a Christian nation, we have to be sort of circumspect about how we, what we're saying with that. We're saying that many of our ideas and our concepts that were influential in the founding of our nation rise out of Protestant Christianity, but that's not to say that all of our founders had the same levels of personal saving grace, if you will, right? So when we think about the First Amendment... The First Amendment says that Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or, or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or of the right of the people to peaceably assemb to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. So when we think about this, this is a very Protestant way of thinking. This is coming right out of the Reformation, that this idea that we can, we can ask our government to revisit issues, that we can vote, and that we can peaceably assemble together, even if we disagree. All right, should Christians support the building of mosques? This was another very recent news report, and I'm trying to show you how timely th this topic is, because this was just from a few months ago. So the Southern Baptists had previously supported the idea of building mosques. And then they had a reversal of that policy. So this is a very important question because Islam is on the rise in our country. And, you know, Christianity, you could make the case, is still the, the majority religion. But Islam would be considered a rising minority religion. 
And so how does the First Amendment fit with the rise of the desire of Muslims to peaceably assemble and to worship? And if they are a minority religion, should we protect that? So 82% of Americans say that it's very or extremely important for Christians to be allowed to practice freely. So I don't know who the other 18% were that disagreed with that, but uh, 82%. Uh, 72% say the same for Jews. 67 say the same for Mormons. And 61 say the same for Muslims. I find these numbers very fascinating because, you know, as we go down the list, it's like, what are we basing this on? My comfort level with the religion, you know, that, that four out of 10 Americans don't believe in protecting the rights of Muslims to peaceably assemble. So here's a question for us to consider is, did the Puritans offer religious liberty for Roman Catholics in the beginning? No. And they were Christians, but they were fearful of them because they're not like us. Did they offer religious liberty for Jews in the beginning? No, they did not. There was an, a concept of religious liberty is for me, but not for thee. I think it's important for Christians to have religious liberty. Mormons, I'm not so sure. You know, in the, in the 1800s, they, that, that was a long struggle for them. Um, so the idea of religious freedom is there in the First Amendment. Have we always executed that with, with excellence? No. But this is, I think, a form of loving our neighbor. Jews are now more protected, right? They're more protected. Muslims, Buddhists, and Hindus are protected legally under the law, but not really in public opinion. And that's what we're really talking about, is in the court of public opinion, we're suspicious, we're fearful, and they're different than us. And we're not really sure how to handle it, right? And so we're just kind of noticing what's there. So we, we have fallen short, I think, at times in our history of the American idea. But the point that I would like us to consider is that this is possibly to our own detriment as Christians. And this is the point that I think many people do not consider. Many Christians have not reflected deeply on the importance of, of protecting minority religions because someday we might be in the minority. And that we might need protection someday. I want to look at an example here from a friend of mine that I went to seminary with. His name was Emil Haddad. He was from Lebanon. He was a Christian. He was a very fine pastor. He's passed now a few years ago. And I went to college with his son. And he, had, um, he did some translation for the ministry that I work for um, into Arabic, of some of our materials into Arabic for... Um, uh, to, to reach unbelievers, to reach Muslims. And he had a great ministry of trying to promote um, religious freedom that he saw as being part of his job as a pastor was to promote religious freedom. And he would travel to the Middle East on a regular basis to meet with heads of state to advocate for religious freedom in Muslim 
majority countries. And what I liked about Pastor Haddad, uh, he was just a beautiful man. I vividly remember being in classes with him, is that because he had immigrated from a, a Muslim majority country, he was more sensitive to understanding that culture because in his country, Christians were in the minority. And he saw the connection between religious freedom and Christianity and that part of being a Christian meant advocating for religious freedom. And I've included here um, the statement that he would work to get heads of state to adopt in other uh, Muslim countries. And it's a very beautiful statement. And he, his, his um, website is Ambassadors for Peace. And he, so I'm just going to read a few of these um, statements. We resolve that we understand that there are extremes in every religion. We therefore agree that violence of any kind to exercise a religious point or to cause, to cause conversion is unacceptable. Representatives from religions throughout the world are con- connected by our common humanity and personal belief in their creator, hereby resolve to honor, respect, and acknowledge every individual's right to their faith in their creator. That's just straight out of Genesis 1. To, to believe in the creator. Therefore, we resolve that the inalienable right of all individuals and to be respected, we, re, we believe that each religion lived out by individuals or an antagonization or organization has the right to peaceably present its views of theology, people and the hereafter. In other words, you're, you're free to, to talk about your beliefs. You're free to talk about heaven and hell and what happens after you die. All national and religious entities have the right to proclaim their religious beliefs and to debate them in an open forum without violence. Not only can we talk about them behind closed doors, but we can talk about them in public. We recognize the individual's right to believe in the religion of their choice. Men and women everywhere have the God-given right, this one's so important, to convert or to not convert to any religion without harm. We agree that no opposing religion or nation has the right to interfere in the religious service of another. The individual has the right to debate the facts about his or her religion without fear of reprisal. Every person, no matter what religion, race, or nationality, has the right to live at peace with their neighbor, no matter what their faith. Here, we therefore assert that all people have a divine right to share what they know and to live at peace with the results. See, for for Pastor Haddad, there is an intimate connection between being a Christian and advocating for minority religions to peaceably assemble. Because in Lebanon, Christians were the minority religion. And so I think that we, I I love this and, and these statements. But the question is, is what do we do as Christians in our own country and how do we help to protect the rights of other people in minority religions who do want to peaceably assemble. Isn't it interesting that the conversation automatically goes to the people who want to be violent, and which is probably a small minority. And when, when I was growing up, you know, there would be like sometimes on the news they would have some news story about a Christian, and like the lead was always, well, they're a Baptist minister. My mother would look at me and say, not all Baptists, <laughs> right? Let's be clear. 
you know? And so we don't want to just automatically fall into the posture of, well, let's talk about the small minority of people who want to go to violence. What about how can we create a space for people to peaceably assemble, even if we don't agree with them, even if we think their religion is totally wrong? Because someday our religion might be in the minority. And I'm talking about ideals here, but I think it's helpful to see what the ideals ought to be so that we can clarify that and not just automatically fall into a place of fear. And I thought this was a great story this week. Saudi Arabia's neighbor, Bahrain, adopted a declaration very similar to this one that we just read of how their nation would advocate and defend the religious freedom of of minority religions. And I think that that is... We would be better off advocating for something rather than being against something. We would, Christians would be better off advocating for a better way, a better strategy, rather than just criticizing what's broken, right? And that's what I really appreciate about my old friend Pastor Haddad is what he was trying to do. This is a quote from the news story. The cause of religious freedom received a significant boost from the Muslim world today. The island kingdom of Bahrain, connected by a bridge to Saudi Arabia, has declared freedom of choice to be a divine gift. That's a, that's, a, that's a human right issue. That's an image of God issue. It's a very distinctly, I think, Christ, Judeo-Christian idea. We unequivocally reject compelled observance, states the Bahrainian Declaration for Religious Tolerance released September 13th in Los Angeles with Muslim, Christian, and Jewish leaders in attendance. Every individual has the freedom to practice their religion, providing they do no harm to others, respect the laws of the land, and accept responsibility spiritually and materially for their choices. To me, this is the best form of coexisting. We've talked about this bumper sticker before. Because there is a sense in which I want to coexist with other religions that I disagree with. Because I want them to respect my religion in a peaceable way. The best way of coexisting is that we all respect each other. And that we can have that dialogue with each other of who's right and who's wrong, right? That's the best version of tolerance. That's not this weird watered-down version of tolerance, where tolerance just means, well, everyone's right and we can't talk about it. This is a vision of tolerance that, to me, actually tolerates something. We're going to tolerate that someone's right and someone's wrong, but we're going to live peaceably with each other, and we're going to treat each other with love, kindness, and human dignity. Three reasons why I think Christians should protect the religious freedom for all. The First Amendment protects all faiths and people of no faith, to have freedom of speech and freedom of thought. Minority faiths are the ones who actually, I think, need the most protection because someday we might be in the minority. And depending on how you define what a Christian is, we might already be in the minority. When Christians allow the government to pick whose freedoms are recognized, we potentially undermine our own religious liberty in the long run. So we're going to go back to this news story hear about the Jehovah's Witnesses. Should Christians in Russia support 
with Jehovah's Witnesses. Well, I think that they should because you know what the next minority religion is up the ladder? It's Protestants. And Protestants could easily be the next ones on the chopping block of you can't peaceably assemble. So it would be to their benefit to begin to speak out for the rights of the Jehovah's Witnesses to, to continue to practice their religion. If we go back to this story for a minute of the Southern Baptists, uh, there's a quote here we're going to read that's not in your handouts, but it goes to the question earlier about false religions. This was from one of the Southern Baptist leaders. He says, if we defend the rights of people to construct places of false worship, in this situation, mosques, are we not helping them speed down the highway to hell? I want no part in supporting a false religion, even if it is in the name of religious freedom. So the question is, is should we support religious freedom for false religions? Because aren't we really just making hell more accessible? This, to me, is a fundamental uh, confusion about common grace versus saving grace. Going to hell is a category related to saving grace. Religious freedom is a category related to common grace. We want to advocate for common grace because we think our religion can win in the realm of ideas. And we think that non-coercion and free choice is actually a Christian idea. But in order to have free choice, we have to have choices available that we think are wrong. Otherwise, it's coercion. It's a more subtle form of coercion. And so even if there's mosques that I disagree with on a saving grace level, I want to protect them on a common grace level to have religious freedom. I think there's a very important distinction that I didn't get to make last week that I think is very important for us to understand. And when we think about the public, there's, there's two, there's sort of two realms of being a Christian. And we've been talking about this, of how we're citizens of heaven, but we're, all citizens, we're also citizens of a country. And so in the public realm, we have, we have government and government responsibilities. And in the personal realm, we have kingdom of God responsibilities. And we have different identities in each of these realms, right? In, in this realm, I'm a Christian. And in this realm, for, for most of us, I'm imagining in this room, I'm an American. Some of you might have dual citizenship. Some of you might have another ethnicity in there. But, you know, we kind of are living in two worlds, Romans 13 is the world of, of the public, of God's instructions to his people of how we ought to relate to the government. And I'm going to come back to the other sphere in a minute here. Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from which God has established. And we kind of talked a little bit about this last week, that the authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves for rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right and he will commend you. 
Now, there's a lot of things that aren't said here. You know, we talked last week of uh, how democratic governments come out of the Reformation and all of that, and I don't want to rehearse all that. But what I do think is interesting is that in early Christianity, the, t- the tension that has, and not even in early Christianity, you just go back to Daniel. Think about the book of Daniel. Here's a government that was regulating every single sector of people's lives. Their religion, their public gatherings, their finances, everything was regulated by the government in Babylon. And the Jews were captive under that system. More than likely, given Daniel's rank in the king's court, he was probably a person who underwent castration in order to be in the king's court. So then the government's even controlling your physical body. The government control of God's, uh, as God's people are living is like not a new situation. That's been the default of how it's been. We just happen to live in a place of privilege where our religion is more in the majority. But it's been the long history of God's people to usually be in the minority and to learn how to live in that tension of being in the minority. But we haven't really had to grapple with that so much in our situation, right? So when we think about the personal realm over here, this is where we think about Matthew um, chapters 5 to 7. And I'd love it if you turn to Matthew 5. Because this is the part of the talk that I didn't really get to last week. Which is the Sermon on the Mount. See, when we live as Christians, we live in the world and we have citizenship in the world, but there's always that tension because really there's this whole other ethical code that Christians are supposed to live by. That This kind of kingdom mindset that we're supposed to have. And so there's the, there's the personal and then there's the public. Are you with me? So we have this tension, don't we? of what's right or what seems to be in the public's general interest for how do we we punish the guilty and protect the innocent. That's in the public realm. Those are are questions that we debate a lot in what we call politics. But that's not what we're primarily talking about in this class. We're not primarily talking about our public duties. That's a different conversation. What I'm trying to call our attention to is what is our value system as Christians in the private realm, if that makes sense. So the the ethos of living in the kingdom of God is is very different than, at times, than living in the public realm and in the realm of politics. So I want to look at Matthew chapter 5, starting at verse 43. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemies. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be the sons of your father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil, to rise on the evil and the good. And he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are you not, are not even the tax collectors doing that? And even, and if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? 
Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is a very hard teaching. How many people think this is a hard teaching? This is a very hard teaching. Because when we think about who are my enemies, I want you to think for a minute. Who is my enemy? Who might be somebody in your life who's really hurt you. It might be an abusive person, even, might be your enemy. And it might be a political enemy. It might be somebody in your family that you're always in an argument with. (laughs) It might be somebody at school that you think, I can't stand this person because of how they show up in their life, right? We have all different kinds of enemies, but it helps if you begin to put a face on who an enemy is. Who is that person? And this is a very hard teaching because when we start asking the question, how do I love my enemies? What does, I've said in this class before, love must look like something. And when we start thinking about how do we love our enemies, that is a very hard question, isn't it? Because we have a tendency to think of my enemies a lot of times are in the public sphere, right? Who are my political enemies? Who are the enemies that are after me? Who, who might even want to create an unsafe environment for me? And I think that this is where it's helpful if we step back from our position as Americans and begin to get a more global perspective on our faith and to, to hear some of the voices of people who live in persecuted countries. Of what does loving your enemies begin to look like when you are a, a Christian living in a persecuted country? Like, how do you counsel someone in your church about, you know, how do you love your enemies when your enemies want to kill you? They want to bomb your church on Easter or Christmas, on your holy day. What does love begin to look like? And that is the real ethos of what it means to be a Christian, is to how do we love our enemies? And I think sometimes as Americans, our tendency is to think of our identity first in the the public sphere of how do I protect myself? How do I protect my country? How do I protect even my religion? But for our identity as Christians, actually, we should be Christians first. And we should have a mindset of how do I have a start asking the question? And I don't claim to have all these answers. I'm just trying to say, hey, maybe we need to start asking better questions of how do I begin to love my enemies? What does that begin to look like? Because if love must look like something, if I only am nice to people who are nice to me, if I only respect people who respect me, if I'm only kind to people that I don't fear, then don't even pagans do that? This is a very hard teaching for us. I think, as Americans, because our tendency is that we want to respond first out of a place of fear sometimes. And that is a hard position, hard mindset to get ourselves out of. And Jesus, I think it's interesting that that the the opposite of fear is is love. So how how do we do that? I think it's a very important and powerful question that when we're thinking about ourselves as Christians first, How do we have this kingdom mindset? Um, Another verse I wanted to highlight was if you turn over a couple pages to Matthew chapter 8. 
verse 18. It says, and this is right after the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus has just finished healing some people. And here's the thing about healing. I've prayed for enough people in the area of healing. Here's the thing about healing is when people get healed, then other people want to run after the healing because they want healing too. And their tendency oftentimes is not to actually want to run after Jesus. They want to run after the healing. And I think it's interesting how this passage is located in Matthew, that he's just finished healing people. When evening came back in verse 16, many who were demon-possessed were brought to him, and he drove out the spirits with a word, and he healed all the sick. So Jesus has just finished healing people. And then in verse 8, when Jesus saw the crowd around him, now there's a big crowd. It's like Ron Klein was talking about this morning. People want to flock to Jesus, but a lot of times the flocking is because they want more miracles. They want comfort. They want to feel safe. And he says, when Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake. Jesus is like, I'm out of here. I think that's an interesting response. Then a teacher of the law came as a Pharisee and said, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus says, foxes have holes and birds of the air nest, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. Another disciple said to him, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. And Jesus said, no, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. This is a very interesting passage because what Jesus is essentially saying is, Being my disciple is hard. It's a hard way. There will be moments of the miraculous. But following Jesus is a long obedience in a different direction. It's a hard life. And sometimes we want, we allow the distractions of life or other priorities to distract us. But the cost of discipleship, the cost of living like the Sermon on the Mount, that's going to cost you something. And if you're trying to live a Christian lifestyle and it's not costing you anything, you might want to start getting in a conversation with the Lord about that. Of why, why isn't this harder? Because <laughs> it, it really should be probably pretty hard. If you're living... As a true follower of Jesus Christ, and, and, you know, like Ron Klein was saying this morning, the great thing about these pastors who are nationals is they're fearless with the gospel. I don't think we're that fearless as Americans. I'm not fearless about it. <laughs> we like comfort, right? We want things to be taken care of. But when you live as a Matthew 5 to 7 Christian, your life ought to be kind of challenging because you're trying to love your enemies and you're trying to figure out what that looks like and you're trying to be a true follower of Jesus and it is not easy and I can tell you that the mindset that we need to have as Christians as global historical Christians is to be in the kingdom of God first. 
not as an American first. Now, that's not to say I don't love my country. I love my country. I, I love to hang a flag on the 4th of July. I love, I'm a big flag-waving girl. I love my country, right? But I'm also circumspect about the fact that things are changing in my country, and it's hard. And that my viewpoints are the minority sometimes, oftentimes, these days. And that my country might not persist in the values that it's had in the past, but my values as a Christian must persist. And that even if the public changes, if the public sphere changes, my, per, my lifestyle ought to be more resolute to being committed to being a, a follower and disciple of Jesus. So what I was attempting to very clumsily try to do last week was to call us into kingdom of God living first and that our our ideals as Christians ought to inspire us to protect the dignity of all people because that is a deeply Judeo-Christian idea that all humans are created in the image of God and that that is part of what it means to have to love our enemies why should I care about loving my enemy it's because they're created in the image of God. Even terrorists are created in the image of God. And I have to begin to ask the question, what does love look like for them? It's a very hard question. The hard part for me is, how do, we, how do you support Muslims worshiping and building mosques without threat, eventually threatening our freedom? Right. You know, by that, are we helping them propagate? Mm-hmm. Islam in our country and to grow and to eventually threaten our freedom? I think that's a, that's a great question, and that's a, a question I didn't get to last week. It was at, toward the end. Um, and I think that that is the great tension of the age in which we live, is how do we, as a free people, and I do think that freedom is a, a deeply Christian idea, how do we, as a freedom-loving people, advocate for Freedom, And I think that part of that answer, and I don't, again, I don't claim to have all of these answers, but I think part of that answer has to be in the distinction of advocating nonviolent and peaceful solutions. If, if, if a religion, even if it's a Muslim religion, wants to worship peaceably, I shouldn't have a problem with that. The problem comes on the other end when they don't want to act peaceably. But to me, that's a separate question. And that's, that's a public government question of how do we punish the guilty and protect the innocent. Okay? So when we think about public policy and how do we handle people who do want to do violence toward us, to me, that's a Romans 13 issue. But how do we... So here's an example of a counterexample, Lamise. Let's say a Christian church goes to the city council and they want approval for land to build a church in a city. It's not uncommon these days for cities to say, we don't want a church here, and to create zoning laws or to create parking laws, like, well, for every three people, you have to have a certain number of parking spaces. And the church can't fulfill those demands. And you can't get a license to open a new church sometimes in a city because of that. Here is why I think it's important 
for Christians to support minority religions is because we, we want to open new places of worship. And maybe we would want a Jewish rabbi to come be an advocate for us at a city council meeting. Or maybe we would want a peaceful Muslim imam to come advocate for us to have a church at a city council meeting. And I think that that, that is the ideal of what it means to understand freedom of worship. And I'm talking about ideals here. Now, if we're going to talk about violence, then we're talking about a different question. We're talking about how do we punish the guilty and protect the innocent. That's a public policy question, and that's a different debate. But the question of whether or not, I mean, in the Middle East, uh, a great example is Iraq. For a couple thousand years, minority religions have existed side by side together because they had a deep commitment to the ideals of religious freedom. It's only been in recent years with the war and the rise of violent versions of Islam where Christians have been driven away, killed, and other minority religions have also been slaughtered. But for hundreds and even thousands of years, these religions existed side by side because they had deep convictions about the importance of peaceful coexistence and religious freedom. It's just that that's not the world that we are currently living in. But we can still advocate for that as Christians and saying, here's a vision of how things could be because they have been in the past. That's not necessarily to say it is that way today. I'm trying to help us get clarity on what our vision can be. I'm always talking this class about like, let's just clarify our stand. And that's what I'm trying to do. Now, there's no doubt that we live in a world of a lot of violence. There's no doubt that we live in a world of people that want to harm us. They want to harm our way of life. And we can debate that. Not in this class, but you can, you can debate that. It, it's a great debate about the public policy. But that I'm trying to highlight what is the kingdom of God mindset and what does, uh, how do we as Jesus followers wrestle with the question of how do we love our enemies? That is a, a difficult question that I think we need to have more dialogue about. And we, if you just go see on YouTube, or if you follow the ministry of Open Doors or uh, Voice of the Martyrs, these ministries that minister to persecuted Christians, there are many terrorists who are coming to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Many of them. And I think that there's quite possibly the seeds of a revival that are starting to happen in the Middle East among Muslims. And so we don't want to get stuck in a mindset of, just as we don't want people to think about us as all Christians are this way, we don't want to be in a mindset of all Muslims are this way. That Jesus can still reach into that dark religion and make himself known. And many of them are actually, because there's hardly any missionaries there, many of them are coming to faith in Jesus Christ through visions and dreams. When I say let's be Christians first, let's think of them as a mission field first, not as political enemies first. And we can, again, have a different conversation about what to do in the public sphere. That's what politics is for. And what's the best solutions? And, you know, you can debate that. But for us as Christians, let's get clear about our vision 
of how we can think about them primarily as a mission field. How can we begin to pray for them? How can we begin to love them? There was a great video I wanted to show today, but I couldn't find it back. That was like a very beautiful evangelistic message specifically geared toward terrorists, Middle Eastern terrorists. And I wanted to play it in class because I just thought it was just a very beautiful way of presenting the love of Jesus. But that I think that when our first mindset about Muslims is fear and terrorism, we're not thinking as Christians first. And we want to be circumspect about that and to, to kind of see what's there. In the public sphere, we have a tendency to think of everybody as groups. Like everyone's in this group. And whoever's in this group, they are this. But as Christians, we need to think of people as individuals. We need to think of them as individual hearts and thinking about those soils that Ron Klein was speaking of this morning. And when I'm talking to a person, it's not useful to think of them in a group. I have to think of them as an individual. And and we've talked many times in this class before about asking the Lord, whenever you're talking to somebody, to start getting in a conversation simultaneously with the Lord of, Lord, what are you already doing in this person's life? What are you already up to in their life? What kind of soil are they? Right? So as you're discerning what kind of soil they are, who cares what group they're in? Who cares if they're a a Hindu or a Buddhist or a Muslim or whatever they are? I don't care what group they're in. I care what kind of soil that heart is. And that's thinking like a Christian first. It doesn't mean that I don't think like an American at all. It's just I've learned how to separate out those two mindsets. And I have to be very circumspect about Okay, right now I'm thinking as an American. Right now I'm having a conversation about what I think is in the political best interests of my country. And right now I'm talking as a Christian. And this is what it means to be a Jesus follower and live the Sermon on the Mount with this person. Yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a, I'm so glad you brought that up, Donna. Because the idea of um, love is, how many of you agree that like the word love has become like one of the most confusing words in our culture? It's like, the, yeah, love is love. Love, love everybody. Love everything. Okay. In our culture, love has come to mean acceptance. Okay. And so for the emerging generation, they're constantly told what love is, is that you accept anyone and everything that they do. And judging is I, uh, is making any sort of qualitative statements about right or wrong. That's not allowed. That, in my friends, is moral insanity. Yeah. And that doesn't work. There, because you still have to judge whether or not you're going to cross the street every day. There's a car coming. I think I'm making a judgment right now. <laughs> there, we have to make judgments all the time. The question is, is what standard are you using to make your judgments? I often thought it would be interesting to do a lesson on the morality of our culture and how they constantly are making moral judgments and then telling me not to judge. They're constantly setting things up as this is morally virtuous and this is morally wrong. I just happen to have a different standard of what's morally virtuous and morally wrong. The question, the question is not how to be unbiased. The question is, is what bias is the best bias to be biased by? <laughs> that is the only question. 
And this is why we spent all last year talking about why the Bible is true. Can I really trust it? Because we must know what bias is the best bias to be biased by. Otherwise, you're just swirling a world of opinions. Are you with me? Yeah. So when we think about the word love, what is love? Well, well Jesus is constantly telling us love our enemies, love, love other people. What does that mean? Well, there's different kinds of love. I want you to meditate for a moment. And I wish I could put my fingers on it right now, but the parable of the Good Samaritan. And he, think of the Good Samaritan and how he, he comes across, well, first of all, that the hero of the story is a Samaritan. Okay, let's be clear about that for a minute. Jesus, the Jewish rabbi, makes the hero of the story the religious enemy. In our context, it might be a Muslim walked by a Christian. You know, it's, it's a, it was a religious enemy that Jesus makes the hero of the story. And then he, what does he do? He, ex, he expresses kindness to him. He is treating him as a person made in the image of God with dignity, value, and worth. He binds up his wounds. He takes him somewhere where he can get cared for. He pays his bills. This is the very concept that I've been talking about. And I was going to talk about this parable in a couple weeks. But this relates exactly to our theme right now of what does it mean to be created in the image of God? How do we, have, how do we express dignity, value, and worth to people that we disagree with? We treat them kindly. We take care of them. It doesn't mean we approve of all their life choices. It doesn't mean that we agree with them religiously. It means that we treat them kindly. And in Jesus' economy, that's where, that's the kind of love that he wants us to express to all people in all times and all places. And so when I talk about, you know, loving your gay friend or loving, loving your Hindu friend or whatever, it's, 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 that kindness, it's that dignity. Then we can have a different conversation in the realm of ideas of what's true or false, what's right or wrong. That's a different conversation. And that's also a form of love. I can tell you I had a very difficult conversation as, as kind of a lay minister. The, the purpose of that communication was to tell her, like, look, you've got all these problems in your life. Have you ever considered that a lot of the problems you have is because you're fornicating with your boyfriend? <laughs> That's a hard conversation to have with a 19-year-old girl who's grown up in the church. But you're fornicating with your boyfriend. Was that loving? Yeah. It's, true. It's, the, it's God's truth for her. Somebody had to say it. Now, in our culture, I'm not loving her. I'm judging her. In Jesus' economy, I'm loving her because I'm calling her to her true identity in Jesus. And I'm saying Jesus has more for you. He's, he doesn't want you to engage in this behavior because he has so much more available for you. You don't need to fornicate with your boyfriend to feel good. There's, there's more that Jesus has for you. Okay? So what love is, we have to be very circumspect about that. And I think we need to have better conversations in our church about what love is. A lot of that is... The, the relationship capital you have with that person. The reason I could have that conversation with that gal is because I've invested in that relationship on the first level of love of kindness. 
and she truly believes that I have kind intentions toward her. So then we could go to the next level of have you ever considered fornicating with your boyfriend might be bringing you into spiritual poverty. But I didn't just walk up to her on the street and tell her that. That wasn't, that wasn't on the first date, you know. That was a lot of sewing into that relationship that she believes me that I have kind intentions toward her. And then the next level of love is calling her into her true identity in Jesus. That's the next level of love is repentance. Yeah, Melinda. Okay. Uh, I was just going to say, if you can't, if you can't support, uh, if, if other religions don't have the right to build, then we won't have a right to build. If we take away their rights, it takes away our rights. Potentially, but, yeah. Okay, I see. You're talking about personally, you're not going to be gung-ho about building a Yeah. I don't think I'm going to, like, wake up in the morning and be super enthusiastic about that. No. But, you know, I... Agenda yeah. Than any other religion. And that is... That is Again, the difficult tension that we're in in our day. And I'm just trying to bring this up and saying, look, this is a very real issue. Here's some ways to think about it. Here's how we have classically thought about it in the past as Protestants. Here's kind of, you know, a bigger picture is how do we live as Christ followers and in the kingdom of God. Those, these are, but this is, this issue is emerging as a very real tension. And I'm just trying to make sure that we're all up to speed on, hey, look, you know, this is how we've classically dealt with this. But here's a a new issue. But for my Egyptian friends, this is not new. They've been living under the persecution of Muslims for almost their entire history. And I think that, again, to emphasize, I think it's useful when we get other voices more than just our own, to, to think about and understand how have other Christians dealt with this in their context and in their countries as minorities? Yeah, Janine. Um, I think people are getting hung up on the word, and me too, is how does the word support? Like, okay. The definition of that in a personal and a public and this way too. Yeah, sure. Because, I mean, I just have a feeling that that's kind of, we keep using the word love, is love support? Yeah, I think that's a great question. Um, I guess for me, maybe I'm using the term in an unclear way. Um, I guess the way I was envisioning it was more of the public, the, 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 the looking at it from the public standpoint of the importance of advocating for religious freedom for minority religions to practice, that they can, their right to choose, that they can have a public place of worship. That's what I mean by support. I'm not supporting their... I can't support them, so I'm like, well, what what does that support mean to her? Yeah. I don't don't support them ideologically. That's where I say last week, I think that's a debate that has to happen in the realm of ideas of who's right and who's wrong. That's a different question than the question of religious freedom of... Should minority religions have the right to practice their religion? That's that would be a better way of saying how I'm using the word support. Does that help? Yes. Okay. To support their freedom. To support their freedom. Yeah, not necessarily to support the rightness. In setting this up, I'm not suggesting that these are mutually exclusive. I'm I'm just again trying to 
as I'm always doing in this class, is saying, here's some mental hooks, here's some buckets, here's some things to help us organize our thoughts. And this is, that's what this is. Now, it's not to say that they don't intersect at points. It's clear to me that we have laws that are clearly based on our worldview as Christians. That's just clear as, as clear can be. Other countries have different laws that are based on their religious worldviews. That's um, very clear because that's why worldviews matter. That's why we spent time on that last year and talking about the importance of worldviews. But I'm just simply trying to make the very modest observation and suggestion that we be under, aware and choosing of what we're deciding primarily as an American and what we're deciding primarily as a Christian and to be very clear in our minds about what those things are. And that now I'm thinking like an American or now I'm thinking and acting like a Christian. And I'm just simply trying to help us get some clarity on pulling these things apart a little bit so that we know what's what. It's hard. It is. That's why I'm here. I'm trying. <laughs> All right, Lamise. I'm going to go to Lamise first, and then I'll come back to you. I wanted to chime in with a little bit of my history. Thank you. <laughs> Rescue me. <laughs> I was raised Muslim and in America, and um, I became a Christian at 14, much to my father's dismay. And I was not allowed to have a Bible or be a Christian. But so fast forward to, like, mid-30s, um, I really began to walk with Jesus, and... I always had in the back of my mind that they have the right to kill me because I'm a Christian. And I just kind of tried to block that out. But then about 10 years ago, I started reading and listening to right-wing stuff and right-wing political Christian stuff and learning a lot of information about how dishonest Muslims are and they're allowed to lie to you. Even if they say they're, they're anti-violence, they may be. All this stuff about how they, they come to America and they're told to stay separate from the culture and don't immerse themselves in our culture because ultimately their goal is to take this country over. over. Yeah. 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 So, but here I am living in this area where I go to Basha Market and I see all these Middle Easterners because I want to get some Middle Eastern food. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm afraid. And every time I see a woman covered in public, it scared me to death because uh-huh. I'm like, what's the deal? She could have a bomb in her clothes. You know, here I am being a Christian, and I'm threatened all the time by the presence of Muslims in my country. And so I finally, God had to wake me up to this. <laughs> and I finally realized, I'm like, wait a minute. I can't just be living in fear. I'm supposed to love my neighbor. And so I had to really talk to the Holy Spirit about this. How do I do this? And he got across to me deeply that I need to love my neighbor. I need to give every individual a chance, and I can't be living in fear. And I need to set that aside. So I, I had to work with that and get past that fear. And now I know I'm well aware of how violent they can be and that my life could even be threatened because I used to be a Muslim and now I'm a Christian. But, um, but that's okay. I just have to meet every opportunity. If I encounter an Arab or a Muslim in public, I need to take advantage of that and perhaps share the love of Christ with them and find out where they're at. Because Jesus might be meeting them in a dream. He might be wanting to use me to save them. That's perfect. Thank you. That was so much more eloquent than I've stood up here for the last 50 minutes trying to explain. Thank you. That was, yeah. I hate the mindset of a terrorist, but I can still love the person. Exactly. There is a tendency that we have, this is just my own personal observation, but we have a tendency sometimes I think as Americans, and the Lord was really dealing with 
me on this about a year ago, is I was very much in a fearful mindset about, you know, some of my enemies. And the Lord said, look, you're, what you're trying to do is you're trying to protect your privilege. You're more animated and more emotional about trying to protect your privilege than you are about trying to bring the gospel to people. And I thought, wow, that's, that's pretty convicting because I was, I was more concerned about how do I protect what's mine. And I realized that maybe protecting what I see as mine is really just a gift from God. And that what if he calls me into live in a country of transition where I'm no longer in the majority and I'm in the minority, and then I would be kind of like Christians, oh, I don't know, around the world. And like Daniel. And that I would have to learn how to do that. And I'm more fearful about losing my privilege than I am about being concerned about how would I live? Would there be enough evidence to convict me if Christianity was illegal tomorrow? I'm, I'm pretty much sure they're, they're coming for me first. If you've been on my YouTube channel, I don't, they're, they're coming, they're coming for me first. <laughs> but I mean, that, that's a legitimate question. I think to ask yourself is what, because part of a, a theory that I have is, is a great question to ask yourself about where you're at with the Lord is what animates your passions? What animates your emotions? What gets you emotional? Because whatever gets your, really your passions going, that's probably what's captured your heart. And I realized that I had allowed some of my political views to be more passionate in my heart than about my, my desire for the gospel. And my burden for people that I consider my enemies. And it was a moment of repentance and conviction for me that this is... This is not what God intended for his, his followers to, to do. He doesn't want me to be more, more passionate about protecting my privilege than I am about preaching the gospel. And so I think we have to be very, I, I'm, I'm all for, you know, I, I'm, you know, I'm a conservative politically. I have certain ideas about things. Please don't misunderstand where I'm coming from. I just am trying to help us begin to pull these ideas apart a little bit so that we can begin to understand how they, what their distinctive features are before we blend them back together. That, that's all I'm trying to do here. And I'm just going to ask for your grace. And, and if you forget everything today, just remember what Lamise said. <laughs> because... That was that. Don't live in fear. That was awesome. Go to Basha Market. Share the Lord with women in head covers. Well, I, I think it's beautiful just to have that that heart for people and to see them as individuals, just as Christ sees all of us as individuals. Yeah. And everyone has their journey that they're on, and, and that the Lord is up to something in people's lives. And let's let's transition out of a place of fear. And let's play, be in a place of love of how can I begin to think of people as individuals? What's, what does the Lord have for that person? And what does he want me to, to say? And if somebody comes across your path and the Holy Spirit prompts you to 
to not be so animated by fear that you don't step out in the love of Christ and maybe give them some encouragement. Because maybe the Lord's, like Lumi said, maybe the Lord's already given them a, a dream or a vision, and they're just waiting for a Christian to show up and give them the whole thing. So you, you just, you never know. Well, hopefully this offered more clarity, and it was a good kind of continuation of what we started last week, and um, that we can continue to journey together and have grace with one another and um, learn together, and, I, and I'm learning too. And, you know, when I'm working on these lessons, uh, uh, it's a learning process for me too. The Lord's got me in that conversation too, and he brings me into conviction too, and that's all, that's all part of this. So, yeah. So next week we will continue and uh, move, move forward. So let me close this in prayer. Father, we thank you for who you are to us. That you are our Father. You love us so much as your children that you want to give us good instruction about how to live the life that you designed us to live. And the life that you designed us to live is that we should ask difficult questions of what it looks like to love our enemies to love our political enemies, to love our religious enemies, and even to love people who want to harm us. Persecution of your people is nothing new. So many people have gone before us, and Lord, we just ask that you would begin to instruct us on how to be humble and how to uh, walk in a space of um, deep and abiding love of you first, as well as loving our neighbor and to grapple with these very important and profound questions of how to live as your kingdom people. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.